Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. In today's Story Saturday episode, we get into some analysis of the discount coup that happened in Russia last weekend. I'm Rob, and today is Saturday, July 1st, 2023. Happy Canada Day to our neighbors to the north. This is Story Saturday, where we dig into analyses, share interviews, and go just a little more in-depth. Let's get started. In this analysis, painstakingly put together after many hours of research, we discuss the mutiny-turned-failed coup, best described as Prigozhin's putsch, and what it could mean for Russia and Ukraine. Our theories are informed by the academic literature, analyses by experts in Kremlinology, and our powers of deduction and reasoning. Before we get into the events of last weekend, let's set the scene from a sociological and political science perspective. According to Columbia University professor Timothy Fry, who wrote Weak Strongman, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia, Russia is what political scientists call a personalistic autocracy or dictatorship. A personalistic dictatorship is a type of authoritarian regime in which all power belongs in the hands of one person and is more repressive, more violent, and more corrupt than other types of authoritarian systems of government. Think of Orbán's Hungary, Turkey's Erdogan, Idi Amin's Uganda, Gaddafi's Libya, Fujimori's Peru, and Maduro's Venezuela. I could go on, but we'd be here all day. Academics distinguish this type of authoritarianism from military juntas, where power is concentrated in the military, like Pinochet's Chile, one-party rule, where power is concentrated in a single party, like Brezhnev's USSR, and absolute monarchies, where power is concentrated in the monarch, who rules through the so-called divine right of kings and is allegedly appointed by God, like Mohammed bin Salman's Saudi Arabia. While they sound really similar, personalistic dictatorships differ from absolute monarchies in two critical respects. First, the line of succession is clear in monarchical systems. And second, should social unrest occur, the monarch can blame government ministers to avoid taking direct responsibility. Any analysis of Prigozhin's adventures in Russia should be viewed through the lens of a personalistic autocracy, as data gathered from other countries may be somewhat predictive. Fun fact? 40% of the world's dictatorships are personalistic autocracies. The more you know. These dictatorships often last for decades and encounter what's called the dictator's dilemma. The dilemma is summarized nicely by Dr. Celeste Wallander, current U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense in International Security Affairs and former CEO of the U.S.-Russia Foundation. Quote, Pleasing or pacifying inner circle cronies with the state's resources leaves less for the public. Every elite giveaway stifles economic performance, undermining the regime's grip on society at home and power abroad. End quote. When the economy slows down under the pressure of sanctions, corruption, uncertainty, and predatory business behavior, there isn't enough left to go around for both the elites and the population. Quote, 
The regime cannot figure out how to escape this balancing act without risking the political change it fears. When regimes crack down on popular protest, it presents yet another dilemma. Fail to repress opponents, and the dictator may find himself on the run or worse. Enhancing the tools of repression may eliminate the opposition, but it creates the means that others may use to dispatch the autocrat. And insofar as the legitimacy of an autocracy rests on a house of cards, repression inspires opposition. End quote. Here's a great icebreaker. 80% of toppled personalistic autocrats end up in exile, in jail, or dead. This one's a hit at corporate retreats. Most personalistic dictatorships are overthrown either by a popular uprising or a palace coup. The dictator has to ensure the elites compete with each other to gain wealth and stay wealthy. At the same time, the dictator must maintain their legitimacy with the population through unofficial social contracts, or at least be seen as competent enough to. Milan Svolik of Yale University also found that the longer the personalist autocrat stays in power, the less likely he is to be toppled. The dictator must decide how to respond to dissonance, how to contain dissatisfaction using scapegoating, token concessions, propaganda, etc., and usually ensure a degree of economic stability. These dictators are forced to place loyalty above all else, which, in the long term, stagnates economies, creates larger cycles of booms and busts, and hampers the administration of state functions. When the interests of the population and the elite diverge, the dictator must preserve the loyalty of the elite, which often results in covert and overt oppression of the population. If the dictator applies too much oppression, he risks a popular uprising. If the dictator shows disloyalty to the elite, he risks a palace coup. Oh, and while he's at it, he must preserve the state's monopoly on violence. Professors Guriev and Treisman at Sciences Pe, pronunciation courtesy of Yulia, thank you, in Paris and the University of California, Los Angeles, respectively, showed that dictatorships in the post-World War II era preferred to reinforce the illusion of competency through control of information instead of using mass violence. Information can be controlled via censorship, co-optation of the elite, or a mixture of both. State propaganda serves to amplify the public's illusion of the despot's competence. Violence is rarely used because competent dictators do not need it. This is why dictatorships often go to great lengths to obscure the use of violence for political oppression. Projecting competency is how they remain in power. During a systemic shock, economic, terroristic, disease-driven, etc., the public's perception of the dictator's competence is key to whether he, or rarely she, stays in power. Over time, the illusion of competency is undermined by the very nature of the personalist autocracy itself. For example, a personalist autocrat wants to alleviate some poverty via a social safety net program. They must rely on loyal elites who have their own loyal acolytes to administer it. The elite and their acolytes systemically steal from government coffers resulting in a weak program. The result is that poverty is not that alleviated. The same concept applies to any function of the state, from maintaining roads to military readiness. Research shows that the interplay between dictatorship and economic outcomes is extremely complex and is just but one way to look at the stability of any regime. How does all of this apply to Vladimir Putin and the Russian Federation? 
According to Professor Fry of Columbia, most contemporary Western discourse on Russia focuses on, quote, Putinology, which is studying the dictator's past and personality, or lack thereof, or the, quote, exceptional Russia, which focuses on the gravitational pull of Russia's authoritarian and its colonial histories. Interspersed in the latter is the effect of the economy. Contemporary research shows it's more complicated than these reductive takes. Now that we've broadened our vocabulary and understanding of these regimes, we can analyze what could happen next in Russia. The economy is but one part of the equation that determines satisfaction among the elites and public perception of competence and stability. Fry finds that economic performance has long been linked to support for the regime in Russia. A little history. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, what is now the Russian Federation was chaotic, violent, and corrupt, and the people were desperately poor. State-owned enterprises became private companies, with the government led by President Boris Yeltsin granting partial ownership in the form of vouchers to every citizen. Nearly all Russians sold these vouchers for food, with a select few businessmen buying the vouchers in bulk, or corrupted elites being given a larger share than they were entitled to. The owners of these vouchers would become the oligarchs. From 1991 to 1998, the Russian economy, hyper-dependent on oil, stagnated. Inflation was rampant. What little wealth there was was concentrated in the hands of a few individuals. The price of oil in September 1991 was about $17 per barrel, then dropped to $10.50 a barrel in 1994. It hovered around $15 a barrel until bottoming out at $8 a barrel in December 1998. By the time the price of oil hit bottom, President Yeltsin's political position was untenable. When Yeltsin resigned in December of 1999, one year after, oil prices had already increased by 280%. Putin, who was prime minister, became president after Yeltsin's resignation on New Year's Eve, December 1999, and he stood for election in March in the year 2000. By election day, oil prices increased by another 13%. The election was the most free and fair compared to all previous and subsequent elections, according to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, or OSCE. From the time Putin took office in December 1999, oil prices rose, peaking at $128 per barrel in July 2008. That's an increase of 1,595% from its Yeltsin-era lows. Putin had enough money to ensure the elites in his favor were rewarded generously and increased the living standards of many ordinary Russians. In Putin's Russia, economic independence is a political threat, entrepreneurship is stifled through corruption, or is purposefully or inadvertently punished by raids, harassment, or seizure. Property rights are ignored. This stifles economic growth. At any time, the regime forces could capture a business, apply onerous taxation, or use other more subtle means to ensure economic output remains controlled by the dictator. Without the economic growth and stability of the early Putin years, staying president would have undoubtedly been much harder. We've put together a graph of the U.S. Energy Information Administration oil prices against key geopolitical moments in Putin's regime in our bonus brief, which is available to patrons and YouTube subscribers at all levels.
The Harvard Kennedy School published a statistically validated working paper in 2016 showing that personalistic autocracies actually tend to weather economic shocks better than all other authoritarian regime types. The study also showed that boom and bust cycles are more pronounced in these regimes, which certainly abetted Putin in his first terms. Putin also had enough money in his coffers to play the elites off each other, making sure that no one faction grew too powerful. The elites who control institutions systematically weakened them through corruption over decades. Look no further than Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu and the Russian Armed Forces as an example. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Moving away from the economy, we can shift to two other key determinants of popular competencies specific to Russia. The first is physical security, and the second is the perception of Russian greatness. According to Alexander Matovsky of the City University of New York, Putin's promise to, quote, restore the power vertical, meaning creating a strong central state, and end a decade of delayed salary payments, urban violence, and petty corruption, proved critical to winning the support of the country's fragile middle class. This promise remained key to the loyalty of his support base, end quote. To those ordinary, apolitical Russians, Putin brought a sense of physical security. In exchange, they acquiesced to his rule and condoned corruption. He tied his image to physical safety in two ways— reducing open razborki, or gang violence, and staging false flag terrorist attacks while pretending to catch the perpetrators. The populace responded very positively, with Putin's favorability ratings skyrocketing to above 80%, per the reputable Levada Center polls. As recently as May 2023, Levada puts his approval at 82%. His strongest base of support continues to come from adults who remember the tumultuous 1990s. Russians like to think they are still a great power. Strong rally-around-the-flag effects of Putin's invasion of Georgia in 2008, the annexation of Crimea and invasion of Donbass in 2014, and the ongoing, quote, soft annexation of Belarus are all popular among a large majority of Russians. In fact, his lowest-ever approval ratings hovered around 60% from May 2020 to January 2022, right before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. After the invasion, his approval increased by a whopping 20 percentage points. Maria Snegovaya, a political scientist who studies Russia at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, cautioned that Levada's work has been more difficult since the full-scale invasion, and a deeper dive into the responses shows certain weaknesses for Putin. 
Here's what we know, or at least we think we know, based on the wild media reports from last weekend. Yevgeny Prigozhin, leader of the private military company Wagner, has been loudly criticizing Defense Minister Shoigu and Chief of the General Staff of the Russian Armed Forces, Valery Gerasimov, for their handling of the war in Ukraine. Putin tolerated the infighting between Prigozhin and the MOD as part of his vaunted power vertical strategy, where infighting elites vie for Putin's favor. Prigozhin isn't in Putin's innermost circle, most of whom, with the exception of Shoigu, are from his St. Petersburg days. Prigozhin had several complaints, which were never directed at Putin himself. He felt slighted that his forces were being expended in Bakhmut, and that Wagner had been cut off from prison recruits. On June 11th, Defense Minister Shoigu issued an order that all PMCs and volunteer units would be placed under the direct control of the MOD by the end of the month. Putin, whom military analyst Michael Kaufman calls a master procrastinator, appeared to have finally made the decision to eliminate Prigozhin's influence on the battlefield and in the ultranationalist mill blogger community. Side note, being a master procrastinator isn't great when you're a dictator. Putin and his apparatus have actively stoked the ultranationalist sentiment to avoid blowback from the elites, who quietly complain about sanctions, and from the population, who've been mobilized and sent to the meat grinder. Prigozhin tapped into that sentiment for his recruitment efforts. For months, Prigozhin has felt he was being iced out and concocted a bold, if bizarre, contingency plan. He complained he didn't have enough artillery and stockpiled it, and prepared to move on Rostov-on-Don. The Washington Post reported that Ukrainian intelligence and its Western allies knew in mid-June that Prigozhin was planning a mutiny of some sort. The Post also reported Putin knew about the ill-thought plot at least 24 hours before it happened, probably prompting Prigozhin to strike before he was ready. CNN reported on June 27th that the U.S. had extremely detailed intelligence of Prigozhin's plans and shared the intelligence with only select allies. The Moscow Times reported that General Sorovikin, an effective, brutal former general in charge of all Russian armed forces in Ukraine, was a secret high-ranking member in Wagner PMC. On June 23rd, Prigozhin released a video claiming Shoigu shelled his troops in the rear. The video was sus. He quickly captured the city of Rostov-on-Don and the Rostov Oblast. He captured the MOD Southern Command Nerve Center, a huge deal, and the FSB building, without firing a single shot. Southern Military District Headquarters is where the war in Ukraine is being fought from. He was captured on video talking with high-ranking military officials, including Deputy Defense Minister Yunezbek Yekirov and Deputy Chief of Staff Vladimir Alekseev, demanding to speak to Gerasimov and Shoigu. He was clearly the one in charge. He released a video demanding Gerasimov and Shoigu speak with him. He received no response from the Kremlin. So onward he went capturing Voronezh and its oblast, then proceeding north to the Tula and Lipetsk oblasts, shooting down three MI-8MT-PR-1 electronic warfare helicopters. Less than 20 of these rare helicopters were known to be in Russian's arsenal at the start of the full-scale invasion. Russia shot down two more on May 13, 2023, during a friendly fire accident. Prigozhin's forces also shot down one Mi-35 Hind helicopter, one Ka-52 Alligator helicopter, 
one Mi-8 transport helicopter and a highly valuable IL-22M command and control plane. Dmitry Alperovich, co-founder of CrowdStrike and the Silverado Policy Accelerator, labeled it the worst day for the Russian Air Force in the entire war, resulting in the deaths of as many as 20 Russian pilots and soldiers. Though it wasn't clear at the time, Prigozhin apparently attempted to negotiate with Putin directly and was refused. Western analysts don't believe he envisaged coming within 120 miles or 200 kilometers of Moscow, where the Russian National Guard, or Roskvardia, set up barricades and prepared defenses. Western analysts also believe that Prigozhin and his forces were going to be defeated easily in a battle for Moscow. During the putsch, Putin's plane apparently flew from Moscow to St. Petersburg, and Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko's plane flew from Minsk to Turkey. The ordeal abruptly ended when Minsk munchkin Lukashenko brokered, quote-unquote, a deal between Putin and Prigozhin. Putin, who had called Prigozhin a traitor in a mealy-mouthed national address without mentioning Prigozhin's name, reportedly allowed Prigozhin to set up camp in Belarus. The deal would allow Prigozhin to maintain his lucrative African mercenary-slash-warlord empire and have the criminal charges against him dropped, allowing Putin to save face. It has since been reported that Putin is attempting to take over the Wagner PMC. The whole episode is deeply bizarre. There have been conflicting media reports about Prigozhin's whereabouts, whether the criminal case was actually dropped, and what the future holds for Shoigu, Gerasimov, and others whom we have since come to learn knew about the armed rebellion in advance. It's clear, at least to me, that Prigozhin must have had some support within the Russian armed forces. At the very least, most in Rostov-on-Don didn't resist his advance. Further, Putin allowed a mercenary group to shoot down seven aircraft, capture oblasts of millions of people, and advance along a main highway in a convoy with almost no resistance. This shows some level of popular support for Prigozhin, who, by giving up, now looks incredibly weak, and, more importantly, it shows incompetence by Putin. There's no denying that Putin failed to protect citizens of the oblasts deep in the Russian interior. Videos were shared widely on Telegram. Worse still, his flight to St. Petersburg during a crisis and then effectively letting Prigozhin, a traitor, go, shattered the illusion of competence when it comes to providing physical security to Russians. The Russian economy, already severely hamstrung by Russian sanctions, will feel the devaluation of the ruble that occurred on the Monday after the insurrection turned coup. The economy was already on life support, and it just got worse. Russia's strategic reserves are rapidly shrinking. Finally, Putin has to protect Shoigu and Gerasimov, even though Prigozhin clearly tapped into popular sentiment that they're incompetent. If he throws them under the bus, other elites benefiting from his network of patronage may ask themselves if they're next, and one may try to organize a palace coup. This conundrum is what caused Prigozhin to act out desperately in the first place. He was going to lose everything if Wagner was subsumed by the MOD. Putin has sided with them for now, but if he does nothing about Shoigu and Gerasimov, he risks angering the public even further. It appears state TV is trying to pretend that nothing happened. I don't think you can put the cat back in the bag. To be clear, this is not over. As of the writing, Prigozhin's plane left from Minsk en route to Moscow. Whatever happens to Prigozhin is almost besides the point, however. The damage has been done. 
Putin has lost the monopoly on violence, embarrassed the proud Russian people, and shown just how tenuous he feels his grasp on power is. I surmise, so take it with a pound of salt, it's a matter of months, not years, before he's removed from power. Ukraine has already won the war as well. It's just a matter of time. To borrow from Professor Fry, who used Ernest Hemingway's quote about bankruptcy, autocrats lose power, quote, slowly, then suddenly, end quote. While we can't predict what comes after Putin, it's not looking good. Personalistic autocrats tend to set the stage for other personalistic autocrats to succeed them. Look no further than Kazakhstan for an example of that. If he's overthrown by the elite, there's just a 10% chance that Russia will become a democracy. If there's a popular revolt, there's about a 40% chance. I'm skeptical Russia will become a democracy outside of some occupying force a la Marshall Plan that rebuilt Western Europe after the Second World War. After the events of last weekend, Putin knows his fate is likely sealed, and that fate will probably be violent. He reportedly obsessed over the 2011 video of an injured Muammar Gaddafi of Libya being stripped naked in the street, sodomized with a bayonet, then killed by a raucous crowd. He watched the graphic video over and over. Putin should be so lucky to see the inside of a Hague prison cell. Once Ukraine can A, clear the minefields and layered defenses, and B, achieve air superiority, the war will be over with the Ukrainian success. That time is approaching rapidly, so long as Western resolve remains steadfast. And that's our less brief brief for this weekend. Don't fall for propaganda. Join us on YouTube and TikTok for more Ukraine content and live news reports. And please consider supporting our work on Patreon. You'll find the links in the description. We'll be back Monday with our regular updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. Thank you.